Hello and welcome to Made to Measure, the podcast of the Journal of Trading Standards. I'm Paul Evans. In this episode, we're turning our attention to animal health. It's often said that the UK is a nation of animal lovers. While for many of us, our household pets are our pride and joy, sadly the welfare of farm animals could be less of a priority. Perhaps it's a case of out of sight, out of mind. For Stephanie Young, though, the health and well-being of livestock is a daily passion. Steph is CTSI's lead officer for animal health and welfare, and throughout her 20-year career she's developed a huge amount of expertise in animal health issues, as well as strong working relationship with a network of farmers and other food producers. The work of Steph and her team goes towards ensuring that agricultural livestock is looked after properly, and that those who are guilty of cruelty or neglect are prosecuted under the full force of the law. In this week's podcast, we spoke to Steph about the importance of maintaining high standards of animal welfare in an increasingly complex food supply chain, the impact of cuts on enforcement, and whether the UK is prepared to deal with another crisis on the scale of the foot and mouth outbreak of 2001. Steph got things started by talking us through some of her day-to-day duties. Hello, I'm Stephanie Young, and I'm a Principal Trade and Standards Officer with Staffordshire County Council. I am the lead officer for the Chartered Trade and Standards Institute for Animal Health and Welfare. My day-to-day job, I manage a team of officers who are responsible for enforcement of the official food and feed controls, um, animal health and welfare on farms in the Staffordshire area. Approximately 4,000 livestock holders in the county, um, so quite a diverse range of, of work that's undertaken by the team. So what was it that made you want to get involved in animal health and welfare in the first place? Um, My background before coming into trading standards, my formal qualifications were originally in agriculture. I spent four years at agricultural college. Um, I grew up in a farming family. I was milking until I was 25 as a a herdsperson on on a local dairy farm within the county. And subsequently, when the emergency beef controls hit the UK um, in 1996, I joined what was then the Meat Hygiene Service, which is now the Food Standards Agency. And then subsequently from there, in 1999, I joined Staffordshire County Council as an animal health inspector and then have taken professional qualifications within CTSI. And and subsequently, I'm sort of CTSP and formally qualified within Trained Standards Institute. Having a background in farming must help. Does, Does it give you much of a rapport with farmers? It's highly likely that the rapport I've got with farmers is because actually I know the industry and I know when somebody's trying to hoodwink me or or pull the wool over my eyes. I understand the challenges that are faced within the agricultural industry. Regulation is is there, has to be complied with, but it's it's how you do that in a a common sense approach. And and you've got to get buy-in, you have to get the industry on board. At the end of the day, this is their industry. I'm regulating it, my team are regulating it. It's a global community that we're policing for because of the exports that we, that we do. Um, if we've got disease, obviously that will stop anything that we can trade with the rest of the world. You know, it's looking after their interests, but it's also being mindful that a lot of these people perhaps don't touch regulation when I say touch it, they don't think that about it on a day-to-day basis. And it's how do we make sure they sort of embrace that and take that in on a, a day-to-day cause to ensure that they're compliant with the law, but actually having recognition for the challenges that they've got within their business as well. Farming is one of those industries where you can't predict um, what's going to happen with the weather. The weather is a, a, you know, a major impact on sort of the agricultural community. If you don't get enough sunshine 
then you've got reduced forage for the for the year. You know, you can't get on and get the forage cut. If you have too much sunshine and again, it doesn't grow and again, you've got no forage for feeding the livestock. Um, so it has a, a major impact on, on sort of the way that farmers operate. They're very isolated in their communities. And what we tend to find is that if you sort of think about the agricultural sector as a whole, 95% of that sector are compliant with the rules. They may not agree with them, they may not like them, but they will be compliant with them. You've then got perhaps one or two, maybe 3% of that sort of um, group who are normally compliant with the rules, but there's been something that has impacted on their business that for a short period of time they can't comply and that's usually something like a bereavement, uh, family problems at home. It could be, you know, with regards um, cash flow within the business, if they've had a particularly poor year with, with the crops, etc. And then you've got that one, one or two percent right at the very top who basically it's in their business interest to break the rules. They know that if they can move perhaps animals without abiding by the standstill periods, they've got an opportunity to make a little bit of money and a little bit of profit compared to their neighbour. And they'll be quite willing to take those chances because they know that the penalties that they're likely to face are not um, really hard enough and they're not going to hit them hard enough to prevent them from offending. And, And that's where we should be focusing our attention, really. It's on those top two percent um which you know they've made it their business interest not to comply with the law but that's the same across the whole of trading standards just to be clear then steph when we're talking about animal health and welfare we're talking specifically about farming not things like pet shops or commercial attractions that involve animals yeah animal health is quite unique in that the function is split between environmental health and training standards depending on the type of authority that you know you're based within but for most two-tier authorities so some of the large shire counties the agricultural sector is covered by trade and standards um, as well as things like the illegal landings anything that falls under the animal health act 1981 will come back down to trade and standards for animal licensing um, that's an environmental health function so your pet shops uh, performing animals has recently moved over to environmental health your dog breeding that's all covered by environmental health rather than trade and standards that seems somewhat counterintuitive doesn't it um, I think it it's always struck me a little bit odd as to why it should be split. Personally, I, I, I would think it would sit better if it was all brought together and undertaken by one unit, one, one department. But it's the way that it's been structured over the years by government. The licensing doesn't fall under the Animal Health Act, and that's probably why it's a district function, because the breeding establishments have always been a district function rather than a, a county function. Um, but it it doesn't exactly sit well, I don't feel, particularly when we're looking at the roles of some of the individuals who are selling dogs, for instance, selling puppies, they're importing animals. One of the biggest threats to the UK at the present moment in time, the illegal landings of, of, of dogs coming in from all over Europe um, and being sold for substantial amounts of money around the UK, to the point where we would suggest that there is organised crime that's actually involved with this. Um, You know, it makes sense when you see that level of criminality going on, tied in with the breeding, tied in with the pet shop, with the the sales of, of, of these animals, that actually that should all be one body that deals with it rather than split between two separate organisations. 
Well, the foot and mouth outbreak in 2001 was probably the last really big animal health crisis in the UK. How have procedures changed since then? And do you think such an event is possible again? The foot and mouth in 2001 was unprecedented. Um, you know, I mean, it cost the UK economy £8.2 billion. Pounds. That was what came out of the Anderson report that was done afterwards following the, the outbreak of the disease. Have things improved? I think as a country, one of the things that we do do now is identify the threats of disease into the UK. There's a lot of work that's done with veterinary risk groups through DEFRA, um, which includes the devolved nations, um, England, so you've got England, Scotland, um, Wales and Northern Ireland, all contribute to that risk, basically that looking at the threat to the UK. Are we likely to see another outbreak on that scale? Probably not on that scale, but it's undoubtedly that we will see um, exotic native arbor disease hit the UK again in, in recent years. One of the biggest threats at the moment is African swine fever. We can see across Europe at the present moment in time, certainly Eastern Europe, there's an increase in cases of African swine fever, wild boar, domestic pigs. There's also been consignment of meat that's been um, prevented from entering the UK by border force in Northern Ireland, where when it was tested, they find traces of the virus for African swine fever. Certainly the pig industry, it's the one that is causing a lot of concern at the moment because we know that, you know, the virus is out there. The last thing we want is for incursion and spread into the UK. But it's how do we make sure that people are responsible and we prevent um, the risk of that disease being, you know, entering the UK. Do you get the sense it's a matter that's being taken seriously enough? Biosecurity is an absolute fundamental basic for, for good animal health and welfare practice. And unfortunately, it's the one area where we see the greatest area of complacency by business. There seems to be increased failures for cleansing and disinfection of vehicles to the point where the industry have actually taken some responsibility themselves. National Pig Association have just recently issued, you know, the um, hashtag muckfree truck. And, uh, you know, they're actually telling the public to challenge, if you see a dirty wagon, challenge it because it shouldn't be right. That, that biosecurity is our first sort of defence in relation to the spread of disease. And if the industry are complacent and are not compliant with those rules, that also coupled with the fact that resource within local government, we're not out there policing as, as you know we were sort of 10 years ago. We haven't got the resource, we haven't got the capability um, and, and, you know, we have to be realistic as to where we put what little resource we do have to ensure that, you know, we're, we're dealing with matters where the threat is the greatest. Now, this is, you know, it is a big threat, don't get me wrong, but this should be something that the industry should be taking responsibility for. It shouldn't need inspectors policing it on a day-to-day -day basis. It's no different than washing your hands every time you go to the bathroom. It's good biosecurity, it's good hygiene. So talk us through the day-to-day -day nature of the job. Do you tend to carry out scheduled inspections of farms or do you tend to have a more sort of responsive approach to issues as they arise? The nature of the work within my area and I would suggest across the broader um, local government area I would suggest now is very much reactive. Um, so it's based upon the threat, it's based upon intelligence that comes into the local authority, um, the assessment of the information that's given as to the type of intervention that's then subsequently required. There are a few programmed inspections that are undertaken. Again, 
those are based upon risk assessment and, and threat analysis, where we've had perhaps a history of non-compliance on the farm or the activities that are taking place within that sector, they're of a greater risk perhaps than, than other areas. And, and again, we're picking up the official food and feed controls as part of the programmed work for the Food Standards Agency. Is that more reactive approach a result of the decline in resources that you have available? Yeah, it is. And undoubtedly, you know, the way that we've had to restructure and look at the way that we deal with the criminal activities that we find in our area very much has to do with the resource that we've got available to deal with it and the level of intervention that's required to get these individuals back into compliance where we find that there is non-compliance. And is there also any issue with the legislative powers around enforcement that you have at your disposal? I I would suggest that the powers are there, the legislation, there's a lot of legislation for animal health and welfare and it's one of the few pieces of legislation, if you look at the Animal Health Act 81, where you've got suspicion that disease exists or has existed in an animal or carcass in the previous 56 days, We've got the power to enter any premises, any building, any any vehicle, any vessel. Um, so the powers are quite extensive within animal health. The issue that you've got really more than anything else is the resource, the people who've got the skills and the capability to use those powers, that you've actually got staff who understand what they can do um, and know what they're capable of doing should they, should they need to use those powers. And I think fundamentally more than anything else You can go in, you can use your powers, you can get somebody back into compliance, but quite often a deterrent factor is prosecution. Now, prosecution is always sort of the last sort of uh, thing that we do within local government. You know, you'll look at other ways to get people into compliance before you prosecute. But where you do prosecute, actually, that should act as a deterrent to others to prevent others from offending and thinking that, you know, it's acceptable to, to break the rules. Where we're falling down, I would suggest, is that some of the penalties that we've got are not strong enough for some of the offending that we're finding. And certainly for areas like, for instance, the biosecurity and the complacency that we're finding with the lack of cleansing disinfection. Should we be looking at what other alternatives there are out there? Should government be looking to see civil sanctions, fixed penalty notices? What else is there available? Not necessarily that it's the local government who administers them, but, you know, what else is there available to make sure that we we get good business compliance? And again, you know, we're already adopting things like earned recognition, where if a business can demonstrate that they've got good history of compliance, then we shouldn't be inspecting them as frequently as we are those that, you know, who aren't demonstrating that level of uh, compliance. So I think we just need to address really... Um, some of the pen- penalties and the sanctions that are available, which at the present moment in time I don't feel are perhaps strong enough to pre- prevent, you know, and, and deter people from offending. And broadly speaking, what's the rate of reoffending after a prosecution? Yeah, um, the only way that we can stop a business from trading is if a court decides that if we've prosecuted for offences under the Animal Welfare Act, um, the court can then decide one thing we, we can request is that that person is then disqualified from having anything to do with animals into the future, whether it be that be dealing, whether that be transport, um, keeping, owning. Um, and we can request that the courts start to look and, and use that to prevent that person from trading in future. The issue that you've got there, though, is that it's only the Animal Welfare Act that allows that sanction. No other legislation um, across animal health is there similar sort of sanctions. And also then, typically what will happen 
is that you may prosecute Mr Farmer under his uh, or under the Animal Welfare Act 2006, but that doesn't stop him then passing the business over to his wife or to his son or to his daughter, and they continue in exactly the same way. And, you know, we've seen it only recently where we've subsequently ended up having to take a whole family back into court for being in breach of their ban and actually prosecuting the whole family and having the whole family disqualified with regards to offences under the Animal Welfare Act. Presumably a lot of the investigations and prosecutions you're involved with come about through collaborations with other agencies and organisations like the RSPCA or the police. Yeah, we work closely with other agencies, so regulators, so the Rural Payments Agency, the Animal and Health Agency, we work particularly well with those because it's their vets that we use to, to give us the evidence that we need for um, formal action to be taken. Um, we also work very closely with the NGOs, so people like the RSPCA, World Horse Welfare. So where we perhaps no longer see some areas as a priority for the authority, for instance, horses may not be a priority or horse welfare, we work very closely with the likes of the World Horse Welfare to assist them as a non-government organisation to take responsibility with regards to those horses and we would act and support using our powers where need be. Again, we work very closely with the local police force, you know, that we find that their, you know, help is, is absolutely fundamental when we're executing things like warrants um, and we need to have that support to ensure that obviously there's no breach of the peace, etc. Do you think changes in food buying habits, like perhaps an increased demand for organic products or free-range meat and eggs, have resulted in some farmers making misleading claims about the nature of what they're producing? Most farms are very, very responsible. You know, I mean, food is the one commodity that everybody uses, so it's a global market. It's in the industries, it's in their best interest, really, to get it right. Some farmers are very, very good. They've got farm assurance, and those additional assurances just demonstrate above and beyond the legislation that they are compliant within the law. Um, what we want to ensure is we've got protection of the food chain, we've got that traceability. The issue you've got really is that the more people you have in a chain, the more people there are that need to make a little bit of money out of that chain. And that's where you're more likely to see perhaps some of the standards getting dropped where um, they will try and beat the system to make that little bit of extra money for themselves. So the global market as it stands, over the last 20 years I've been in the job, I can't honestly say that I've seen anything significant that has sort of changed within the farming industry based upon different people's buying habits. The reality of it is, is that people want cheap food. You know, when you look at the percentage of the annual budget that people spend on food within their household income, it's very, very small um, at the present day and time compared to what it may have been sort of 50 years ago. Um, you know, it's only a small percentage of, of the annual income that gets spent on, on food. And, you know, whilst welfare is important, people expect that as a fundamental basic without necessarily paying a, a, an enhanced premium for it. What about the substitution of one type of meat for another? I'm thinking here specifically of the horse meat scandal a few years ago. I think substitution out there is, you know, we've seen it with horse meat. I think the worrying factor with things like horse meat is that 
you know, the, this, these were major retailers that were involved with the distribution of these, these final products and major manufacturers, you know, they were big names that were caught up with the, with the horse meat scandal. They'd all got assurances coming out of their ears, you know, they'd got so many different standards that they were working to and yet still the product that they were using was substituted and had been adulterated for horse meat rather than it being beef. So do I think it's going to happen again? Probably not on the same scale, but I think there is always that um, opportunity, um, whether it be one of the, you know, an SME or whether it be a large retailer. I would suggest probably some of the larger businesses have probably got procedures in place to prevent that from happening again and the supply but adulteration is always one of those risks you know substitution adulteration it's there yeah undoubtedly well in your recent talk at the ctsi symposium you spoke a bit about some of your concerns around potential future crises around animal health bovine tb was something you particularly highlighted could you elaborate on that a bit yeah, bovine TB is a notifiable disease. So it falls under the Animal Health Act exactly the same as any other notifiable disease, such as foot and mouth, etc. The only difference being is that TB is an endemic notifiable disease. That means we've got it in the country and we've got it, it is prevalent in the country, in the UK. Foot and mouth is an exotic notifiable disease and therefore it's not native to this country. When we see it, the control mechanisms for the likes of foot and mouth are totally different to TB but they are still both notifiable under the Act. The cost of TB to the UK economy, just to England alone on an annual basis, is £100 million per annum. Now, you times that by 10, that then becomes a billion pounds. Um, this is significant. You know, it's, it's a major cost on the um, taxpayer. Um, there's compensation that's being paid out of the public purse. The control's being paid out for, you know, from the public purse. The, there is a strategy for England um, and Wales with regards to TB for the countries to become officially TB free and for eradication of the disease. And that's a 25 year strategy. So this isn't going to go anywhere quick. You know, we're in for the long term with TB. The nature of the disease, we've already identified that because it's endemic, people are complacent about the disease. Because there is a compensation system that sits behind um, animals which are taken as reactor animals which are believed to be diseased, um, we've already seen that some businesses have abused that compensation system and have made some substantial amounts of money off the back of compensation and are quite happy to farm TB because they've got the compensation which basically means they're probably likely to be a little bit more profitable in some instances than they would be if they were just farming in the first instance. So it's only one or two irresponsible individuals, but sadly, because of the nature of the disease, those one or two irresponsible individuals are compromising the whole and undermining the whole strategy that we've got for the UK. Um, and we, we should be focusing our attention on, on that. And we are doing a lot more work with regards to TB and trying to um, identify where the threats are and actually where we need to be prioritising our resource. Have you noticed any trends along the lines of a, a producer's size in sort of the rates of non-conformity to trading standards? Do you find, for example, that smaller traders tend to be worse than larger ones, or is there no pattern? No, there's the, there is there is no trend, and that's that's the worrying factor. Um, certainly, if we look at some of the cases we've taken within the authority, 
um, you know, we've had one very small producer who was deliberately interfering with the test, um, who was successfully prosecuted for fraud for interference at the TB test. Um, and when asked about it, he said, well, everybody's doing it. So that gives me real cause for concern um, that somebody could put a throwaway remark like that. And then when we've had other cases that we've looked at where we've physically changed behaviours, we've gone in and we've either prosecuted or just by our presence and by um, investigating those businesses, their behaviours have changed and subsequently they've gone off restriction. And if we look you know, as a, as a whole, some of the premises that we've got in Staffordshire, four premises in recent years where we've gone in, we've either prosecuted or we've changed behaviours by going in on those palms, the savings that have been made from four premises alone is in excess of half a million pounds. And that's to the public purse. This is where they were previously under restriction, previously claiming compensation, intervention then where you've gone in and and um, either we've taken formal action or we've we've looked further as to what's been going on as to why that business was under restriction. It could just be that their biosecurity hasn't been as good as it should have been to try and prevent the spread of disease. Those interventions on just four premises has saved £521,000 to the public purse. That is significant, and that's those are the sort of figures we need to be shouting about. It would be nice if some of those savings could be directed back towards trading standards resources. Absolutely, and that's what it needs. It needs money putting back in, resource putting back in. Um, if you look at trading standards as a whole, you know we know from the workforce survey, 50% cut. I'd suggest that where you've got specialist skills that are required for food, feed, animal health, those cuts have probably been deeper. You mentioned earlier on about how cuts have forced your team to take a more responsive approach. In in practical terms, what other effects have cuts have on, on your work? I think one of the biggest impacts that we had was post foot and mouth in 2001, there was ring fence funding that was put in for animal health. It was £10 million per year um, and that was given to England and Wales, of which I think there was about £8.5 million of the of the budget that was spent um, subsequently, that funding was reduced. Um, Eric Pickles basically took the funding from being ring-fenced in 2010, cut it right back down, put it into the revenue support grant, and then local authorities never saw that money again. An impact on that has um, a major, you know, sort of uh, knock-on effect that's felt. Um, they don't want footfall on farm. You know, business have, have complained to government that they feel that they're over-regulated um, and they don't want footfall on farm. Majority of the footfall is probably from um, assurance bodies, which, you know, the industry are paying to be there. At the end of the day, they're a business and you have to expect to be regulated if you're a business. That's that's just the rule of life, isn't it? You know, if you're going to be in business, expect to be regulated. You have to be able to demonstrate that you are producing to a standard that's expected by the laws of the land and, and, you know, and obviously any international trade that we may have. So with that ring fence funding gone, the laws themselves, we've got greater introduction of EU legislation that, that we're using within animal health and welfare. Majority of the rules that we're using are European-based. Even with Brexit, we're going to continue to use those rules. We've had um, 429-2016, which is a new... Um, notifiable disease legislation that's coming in from Europe. DEFRA have said that, you know, that will be implemented from 2020. That will be regardless of whether or not we leave the EU. 
we still have to comply with the international rules for, for uh, animal health and welfare. We have to police. We have to be able to demonstrate we're policing. And the other aspect with, you know, the law as it's changing is it requires competent authority for which local authority are, you know, recognised as being the competent authority for animal health and welfare to have qualified personnel. Well, we're struggling to demonstrate that, we, you know, we've got those qualified personnel. With Brexit, we become a third country not only are we going to have to demonstrate we're policing, you know, we're, we, we are, you know, following the rules, but we're also going to have to demonstrate that we're, we're policing the rules. Current moment in time, we can't do that, I don't believe. Now, I know it's hard to talk with too much certainty about the changes Brexit is likely to bring about, but do you have any particular areas of concern, perhaps around imports of animal feed? I think one of the big ones with animal feed is that certainly um, we, we already trade on a, on a world market for feed anyway, Obviously, where feeds are landed into Europe, they're deemed to have been landed and they're safe passage then into the UK. And we accept that, you know, obviously they've met the standards that are required um, for incorporation into to sort of feeds in the UK that they're safe. If there are additional tariffs that are added on to feed that's subsequently imported into the UK, that could again um, have a knock on effect because those um, additional charges would have to be incorporated by the feed manufacturer, by the, the business that's imported the feed. And those add-ons, basically those costs get added on at the end to sort of the um, final user, which is going to be the farmer. We've already seen for some businesses, their credit with some feed companies is being withdrawn. Um, if it is that they've not been good payers, etc. Again, if that credit's withdrawn, the cost of feed goes up they're not going to perhaps feed as much as they ought to. Um, and then that's where you start to get welfare issues and, and we may see sort of an increase in welfare problems sort of come Brexit and, and what happens. But it's very much a finger in the air at the moment because nobody knows what's happening. But by the looks of it, I would suggest maybe we're going to leave without a deal. And, and again, you know, the implications of that, I think, um, would be quite challenging, not just for feed, but for... Um, the trade in any animal or animal-related products coming in and out of the UK. So there's a potential that Brexit could lead some farmers to cut corners in order to mitigate additional expenses? I, I think potentially there is. I think because of the increased costs, people have got to look for savings somewhere. And therefore, if corners are cut, things like animal byproducts not disposed of correctly, you know, or, or traceability of goods... Um, is lost because of the sources that they're, they're getting them from. You know, it's fallen off the back of a wagon, who knows? You know, you, there is there is a real compromise there. And, and then the other challenge that you've got as well is that should the UK take trade with other markets where perhaps their standards for animal health and welfare are not as high as those for the UK, there's potential then as well that, you know, you, 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 there's competition within the market and you know the market forces again we've already said people when they're buying commodities um, and, and food being a commodity they're always going to look for value for money and you know it may encourage them to buy products which you know have come from countries where standards for animal health are a lot lower than those within the UK and, and we are presently world leaders when it comes to sort of standards for animal health and welfare. It must sometimes be difficult not to become quite emotionally involved with some of the cases that you come across. I think some of the some of the most challenging things for me, more than anything else, is that certainly where we've had instances that have been highlighted to the authority 
through pressure groups, basically, non-government organisations, um, where they may have put footage out into the media before referring it through to the local authority. That I find very challenging. Public perception on what should be going on and what how a local authority should respond to those events are sort of... You've got to balance that along with the available powers you've got to deal with the situation and the resources and the capability you've got to deal with the situation. When I look at some of the cases I've dealt with over recent years or my team have dealt with, actually those people don't deserve to farm. They really don't. Having an animal, looking after an animal is a privilege. You know, we're rearing an animal for a reason. That animal basically is, is you, we would either breed from it or it'll end up being used for production or it will end up in the food chain. And we've got a duty, not, not, not just a legal duty and a statutory duty, but a moral duty of care. Um, you know, you would never do that to a pet that you own. So why would you do it to any other animal that, you know, is being farmed just because it's being farmed? You wouldn't. You know, so we, we do have that moral standard as much as anything else. And, you know, it does give me cause for concern if when I see people treat, you know, a, a, an animal in the way that perhaps they do. Why? What's their rationale behind it? You know, and, and I, I struggle at times to comprehend um, sort of what must be going through people's minds because a lot of them, they live on these farms. It's their, you know, they're, they're going out on a day-by-day basis, what makes them think that that's acceptable? Or is it that they get to a point in some situations where actually it's gone too far and they've got no way of pulling it back? I, I don't know. I don't know. So just to wrap things up, are there any key pieces of advice you'd give to others in trading standards about how to best tackle some of the issues we've been talking about? I have to say I've got a job in a million. I absolutely, I'm really passionate for the profession, really passionate for the for the role that I play Um, in regulating the food chain and I think if you speak to any animal health inspector they would probably be in agreement with me you know it it, it really is one of those those jobs where no two days are the same and you know that what you're doing might be small scale but actually in the bigger picture it, it makes a big impact it really does if I was going into it now, I think the key thing is, um, you know, we are working in a more intelligence-led environment. Some organisations are further forward in recognising what threats are compared to others. I would suggest you certainly need to be looking at recording your intelligence and analysing it. That's the key thing, is taking from it where the threats are. Once you start to record it and then start to extract the information, you can then see what your big hitters are. And that's where you can then demonstrate to your local authority where the resource is required. So, for instance, I can see in Staffordshire the biggest issues that we've got are TB, obviously, is a big one, uh, biosecurity, and and, uh, animal welfare, I can see the big hitters. You know, we can discuss at team level then the strategy that we're going to use within the authority for dealing with these matters and and how we're going to approach um, ensuring that we've got good compliance by the industry. And it's not just about prosecution, it's getting the right materials out there for the industry to take responsibility themselves, take ownership themselves, um, and making sure they've got the right tools to do the job. I think if you can get that right and you've got that good liaison, good communication with the industry, um, that you've got go-to people that you know your leaders within that community that you can um, encourage to, to get compliance up across sort of um, various areas. That is a big step in making sure that our resources then focus where it needs to be. We regulate on risk, but we do have to be satisfied that we've accurately assessed that risk. 
and that that is key so people need to make sure they are prioritizing work that we are satisfied that we have got those risks accurately assessed well that's it for another episode thanks to steph young for talking to us and thank you for listening We'll be back again in a fortnight's time with more from the world of trading standards. If you have any ideas or suggestions for the podcast, or you just want to get in touch, send us an email to madetomeasure at jtsmag.uk. Don't forget to like and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening to us. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.